Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za And I'm one of the deacons here at Heritage Baptist. We're uh, in a little bit of trouble today because a little ran out of options of who to ask to preach. <laughs> and so he had to scrape the bottom of the barrel. We find ourselves this morning in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 1 to 14. Reading this text and going through it this uh, uh, this week, you know, I had, a, I had a, a coffee with a brother a couple of weeks ago, and I said, listen, I said to him, listen, I'm preaching on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. Now, he then proceeded to say, well, it's your first time, and you managed to pick one of the hardest texts in the Bible. Uh, we trust that uh, the Holy Spirit will be with us this morning and help us as we look at this text. Let me just pray first and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Heavenly Father, glorify yourself this morning. We ask now that you please show us Christ to the end that if there's any in our number who's not saved, we change their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. While you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, I think it'd be useful just to do a bit of a, of a macro view on the book of Ephesians. The phrase dynamite comes in small packages fits hand in glove for this book of Ephesians. This little book of six chapters, short chapters, is packed with amazing truths. You almost can't read Ephesians without having to take a break as you go through these verses. There seems to be unanimity, um, at least among the scholars that I've uh, referred to, that this letter, though targeted, or rather addressed to the Ephesians, was meant to serve as a launching pad, a launching pad from the church in Ephesus and, grow out, and go out throughout the churches in Asia Minor. This makes sense because unlike the book of, Ephes- of Philippians, rather, there are no personal or specific references in this letter, but it is generic in this respect. The churches that Paul wrote to were made up of Jews and Gentiles, many of whom would have been going through persecution So much so that Paul needs to remind them of who their true warfare is against. And he says in Ephesians 6.12 that their warfare is against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers in the present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Paul therefore aims to remind his audience of their identity in Christ, of all that they have in Christ. And, you know, he's, Paul has split this letter in two sections. In the first three chapters of this book, Paul goes on to show them what the clever theologians have called the indicatives. Who are you in Christ? What has Christ 
done for you. And then he goes on from there in the last three chapters. He answers the question, so what? So Christ has done all of this. So I have my identity in Christ. So I've been redeemed through his blood. So what? And then he goes then to talk about what the theologians call the imperatives. And he goes and applies it to different groups within the church. So now that we've done the macro view, now that we've, we've done a helicopter view in the book of Ephesians, turn with me now, please, to chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 1 up until verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, has, which he has blessed us, and the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the reading of God's word. I know it, uh, it doesn't show, but I spent a decent amount of time in my 20s playing soccer. And in a, in a well-functioning soccer team, there are different positions and, sp and different roles. There are defenders and midfielders and strikers. And every player is allocated a jersey number. And the jersey number that always stood out for me is a, is a, is a player who wore position number eight. And this player who wore this prestigious jersey was called the central midfielder. Now, this especially gifted player was involved in every single play of his team. He used to go and defend, help his defenders. He would create the mid, uh, he would control the midfield. He would create opportunities for strikers. And even he himself would go on to score if he had to. And now at the, at the highest level of soccer, the Soccer World Cup 2010, the player who won the winning goal for Spain, guess what? Was jersey number eight. Like a conductor in an orchestra, he has the responsibility of conducting the game, control its place, its pace, and ultimately determine its destiny. If a team has a weak central midfielder, the, the team has no hope. 
The entire responsibility of the team's success, to a large degree, sits on this player's shoulders. This game finds its identity in this player. Now we have something like this in our text this morning. In relation to Christ and our identity in him. All analogies, all analogies ultimately fall short when you compare it with Christ. But just as this jersey number eight is central to his team, our Lord Jesus Christ is central in our faith. He is central to our election, our redemption, and our ultimate inheritance and glory. Without our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity. Notice with me, please, the number of times that the phrase in him or in Christ was repeated in our text this morning. This text, saints, just oozes with Christ. You can't read this text without being slapped in the face of just the awesomeness of Christ. Not only this, but also in our text this morning, it's just a, you see that woven through our text, the Trinity, one God, three persons working together for our salvation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in our election, in our preservation, and in our future glory. Now, for those of you taking notes and are helped by this sort of thing, I've divided our text this morning in four sections. One, Paul's introduction in verse 1 and 2. It's going to be followed by our election in Christ in verses 3 to 6. Our forgiveness and salvation in Christ, thirdly, in verses 7 to 10. And then our hope in Christ in verses 11 to 14. So let's go now to our first heading, Paul's introduction. We read in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ. There are three things I'd like you to notice about Paul's apostleship. One, to be an apostle, Paul would have had to have been commissioned by Christ as a witness to his people. In Paul's case, he specifically specifically commissioned to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. He says in Ephesians 3, 7 to 9, just flip one more page in your Bibles. He said, Ephesians 3, 7 to 9, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to who? To the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light everyone, to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul was faithful in bringing the gospel truths to the Gentiles and also in discipling and strengthening these churches. The second thing I want you to notice about Paul's apostleship is that we can deduce from Scripture that to be an apostle of Christ you would have needed to have been a witness of the resurrected Christ. Peter says, Lelo went through it helpfully for us a couple of months ago in Acts chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. He says this, you don't have to go there. So one of the men, is now speaking to the hundred, or was it 120, I can't remember now. He says, one of them who have, been, who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from, his, from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, 
one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now you you sit in there, you say, but gee, we do know that Paul was not among the men who were with Christ from the time he was baptized up until he was taken up from them. So what's going on here? Why does Paul call himself an apostle of Christ? While some might say that the Damascus Road experience was a, as a, a resurrection experience for, Christ, for Paul, the key answer to this conundrum is in 2 Corinthians 15, 3 to 10. And I'm not going to read it, but in that we see that Paul himself explains that his apostleship was unique and different. He says in that text that Christ appeared to him as to one untimely born. But perhaps for me, the most staggering thing in Paul's apostleship is the opening line of Ephesians chapter 1. About two weeks ago, we read of Paul, who was then called Saul in Acts chapter 7 that Lelo took us through. This is Paul who persecuted the church and acquiesced to the stoning of Stephen. This same Paul, who now had a heart heart against Christ, now has a soft heart towards the gospel. Now an application for us here, dear Christian, is to commit to God those seemingly unlikely converts in our lives. Now some of you might have parents who have stones harder than hearts. Or you might work in circles with atheists who hate God, and you even do wonder yourself if they'll ever be saved. I encourage you, dear Christians, to commit those people to the same God who can make a Paul out of a soul. Commit them to the same God who can make a Christian persecutor into an apostle. Commit them to God who is able to make God lovers out of God haters. The third thing I'd like to point you about Paul's ministry is that alongside the rest of the apostles, his ministry is the foundation on which the church, the household of God, is built. And I get this from Ephesians 2.20, which speaks of the household of God, the church, and it says this, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We here at Heritage Baptist Church, or any other church for that matter, cannot claim to be a faithful church if its teachings is not rooted on the apostles' teaching, with Christ himself being the cornerstone. That's why our pastors, Sunday in and Sunday out, here at Heritage, are at great pains to give you a healthy diet of God's word that's rooted on the apostles' teaching. Now, it doesn't mean we never, we never go through the Old Testament. We'll go through the Old Testament, but even then, we use the apostles' interpre- interpretation of the Old Testament. And this is something I'd like to exhort you this morning to hold everyone who stands on this pulpit to be faithful to the teachings of the apostles. And if you go to a church, you're visiting here us perhaps this morning and you go back to your church, also hold your pastors and teachers accountable to God, to the teaching of the apostles and also Christ as the cornerstone. Notice as we continue in verse 1, Paul says he is an apostle of Christ by the will of God. None of these self-proclaimed you know, pastors that we, or apostles that we come across today, men walking around with bodyguards, 
planting churches for self-gain, claiming an office of an apostleship which no longer exists. Because we know that the last apostle to have lived, lived 2,000 years ago, and that's Paul. If you find yourself in a church like that, where the teacher or pastor calls himself an apostle, run away from that church like you would from a bear that's been robbed of its cubs. Verse 1b continues to say, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. Note first the identity of Christians that Paul writes to. He calls them saints. Now this is not to be confused with the Roman Catholic view of sainthood or in the Eastern Church. An article in the Wall Street Journal talks like this of Mother Teresa and her path to sainthood. It says this, Mother Teresa is to be canonized by the Catholic Church on September 4th. Canonization is the last step, according to the Catholic belief, before we become a canon. She is to be canonized by a Catholic Church on September 4th in a ceremony expected to draw thousands of pilgrims to Rome and TV viewers across the world. It is a culmination of several steps that can last centuries for her, but for her have been hastened to a mere 18 years. Canonization typically doesn't begin until at least five years after death. Because he was so wild, widely admired among the faithful, however, Pope John Paul II waived that traditional waving period, allowing the process to begin 18 months after her death in 1997. Notice the stark difference between Paul's theology and sainthood versus that of the Roman Catholic Church. If you're a Christian today, the Bible tells us that your identity changed from sinner to saint. Finish and love. There are no steps needed. There are no centuries. You don't need to have performed miracles or years after you die. Listen to me. Mother Teresa is not the earliest saint to have lived. The earliest saint to have ever have lived is the youngest Christian who's believed in Christ. You don't have to be martyred or perform miracles. You just need to believe in Christ. Now let that sink in. I mean, yes, we're not perfect. We're not, we don't believe in, in sinless perfection here. Though you are a saint, you are, and I am, a sinful saint. But we are saints nonetheless, based on the imputation of God's righteousness on us. What an, what an identity to have. We continue now, still in verse 1. Paul says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, we've already established in my introduction that whilst the original audience included um, the church in Ephesus, it was not limited to that audience. Rather, it was meant to serve as a launching pad with Ephesus itself being that hub on which the letter, the letter would be uh, sent to Asia Minor. Paul credits these churches as faithful in verse 1. Now, there's not a lot of detail that tells us as to why exactly he says they are faithful. But we get a taste of the metal of uh, the audience that uh, Paul is writing to in verse 15, still in chapter 1. Just quickly turn there in verse 15. Listen to this. We're told that Paul, what has he done? He has heard of their what? Their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love towards the saints. Wow, how exemplary is this. If Paul was to write today, he'd say, to the church of God that is at Heritage Baptist who are faithful in Christ. Would he say that about us? 
as are we faithful? Now I hear a lot of reviews about our church. You know, you read some um, some links. Lelo, Lelo pointed me to a review we got on our Google website. It says, welcoming church, warm church. Encourage you to go there. Praise the Lord. Amen. But all that, we'd have more reviews at church about heritage. They're saying, we've heard about the saints at Heritage Baptist. They have, they have faith in Christ and they love the saints. May we aspire this. May we desire this. Let's move now to verse 2. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul calls upon God's help, his unmerited favor, that is grace, upon these churches. Michael Rogers went into a lot of detail on this grace and peace to us as he taught through 2 Corinthians 1-2 to last year. So I'd encourage you to go and, and listen to that sermon on our website so I won't spend too much time on that. However, it's worth mentioning again that the word peace here, shalom in Hebrew, has the idea of being at peace with God and your surroundings, a true sense of wholeness. But let me tell you this, unless you're on good terms with God, you cannot experience this sort of peace that Paul is talking about here. If you get called by a bank this week and say, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, the loan that you owe of a thousand rand is due and payable next week. And you know that you only have a thousand rand in your bank account. That should cause, and that will cause, sleepless nights for you. You will not have peace. You will not rest until you find that million rand to pay back to the bank. How much more? When we have an infinite liability to God, a price that we cannot pay, how much should that cause sleepless nights to us? The wages of our sin are too much to bear. Romans 6.23 says this, is the wages of sin is death. Yet look at what Paul says to the Ephesians. He reminds them of the peace of God which they have because their debt has been paid in Christ, as we'll read later. Are you at peace with God? Have you settled accounts with God? Have you done business with God. Paul says of Christ in chapter 2 verse 14, still in Ephesians, well, I love this letter, all the answers are in Ephesians. Verse, chapter 2 verse 14, he says this, he says, he himself is our peace, speaking of Christ, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, now referring to his death, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So make him peace and might reconcile us to both God, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. See that in Christ's death we can experience this peace. I'll come to him experience this peace that comes only in him. Now that we've concluded Paul's introduction, we're now going to move to our second heading, our election in Christ in verses 3 to 5. Our election in Christ in verses 3 to 5.
He says this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Praise be, honor be, thanks be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us, he has bestowed us, he has given us, not some, not many, not most, but every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. As someone said, God is the initiator of the plan. The grand plan of salvation comes from him. And he's the one who blesses us with the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So what are these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? I think Ephesians 2.6 gives us an idea of that from verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. It says, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us where? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice the same heavenly places in context with spiritual blessings also used here with being seated in Christ. Now the Ephesians and the rest of the churches here are told to be, to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And this does not only apply to them but to us as well. Now you might be saying, I mean, geez, I mean, that's great. thank you very much, but I'm seated here. There's my chair. I'm in 5th Street, 25. What's our address? 25 5th Street, Melbourne. I'm seated here at Heritage Baptist. So what are you talking about? You're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. To, to help us answer that, let's, let's look at another place where the phrase heavenly places is used in Ephesians. And just, just turn, please, to Ephesians 6.12. Ephesians 6.12. He says this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the forces where? In the heavenly places. So I take heavenly places to be the unseen realm, the other world, the supernatural world. So then back to our original text in verse in chapter 1, verse 3, I take the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places to be all the blessings that come with being united with Christ. Now, these, these includes our protection from evil forces in the heavenly places. It includes his intercession for us, him being our advocate before God in heaven at the throne of grace. It includes our being seated with him in the heavenly places. How? As we, it's because of Colossians 3, 1 that I that I think we see to the God in the heavenly places, we're told that we are to seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We are to be thinking of Christ. We're to be setting our mind and thinking of Christ where he's in heaven and so be united with him in that way. And we also know that Christ's spirit dwells with us. So we are united with Christ and are with him spiritually in the heavenly places. Now, all of these things are just a, a handful of some of the blessings we have in Christ. But I want you to notice that these spiritual blessings are, in verse 3, in Christ. If you want to enjoy the true blessings of God, 
The source is not primarily in your giving to the church or attending church or fasting or observing festivals and days and all of those things. Now, those things are not bad in and of themselves. Many of us here enjoy material blessings. Many of us enjoy good health, families that love us, good food. Many of us are in a good financial position. And yes, these are wonderful blessings. Thank God for those. But these are transient. Do you want eternal blessings? Do you want a hope that never fades? Do you want to spend a million to the power of million to the infinite million years enjoying Christ's blessings? Come to Christ. Only they, only in him can those blessings be found. Verse 4 says as we continue, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now the original readers of Paul's letter said to have been chosen. And in verse 5, he says they have been predestined. Notice it doesn't say to the Ephesians church, even as you chose him. Even as, but rather it says, even as he chose us. Left to ourselves, we would never choose God. We're incapable of choosing God. We talked this morning at Family Bible Hour, the Bible class, about our sinfulness and how we've fallen. And at Adam and Eve's fall, that is their sin, our faculties, that's our mind and our, our will and our affections were marred. They were broken. They were completely depraved. Romans 3, 10 to 11 reads, it says, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. And what? No one seeks for God. Left to our own, we wouldn't come to God. Rather, it is God who chooses the Ephesian church. He chooses them and he changes their affections and their wills and their minds. You know, a, if we'd open a door and we had to put the lamb chops and, and fine wine here and here we had to put garbage. Right? We put, just empty the, the dustbin and put it here. And we opened the door and we had a pig come in. Where's the pig going to go? The pig's not going to go to the lamb, chops, and wine. It's going to get stuck in into the, into the rubbish, into the garbage. In one sense, that's us. B- before we get recalled into Christ, we just enjoy the garbage of the world. And then God chooses us and he calls us and we change. Right in the midst of the garbage that we're eating, we just, we just step back. Hang on, what's going on here? Here is fine lamb and here's wine. Let me drink that. Let me have that. So then to what end does God choose us? The answer is found in verse 4b. That we would be holy and blameless. You ask, what, what is God's will for my life? It's, it's, not, it's not complex. It's not difficult. I mean, there's so much confusion in the world. What would God have me do? I mean, students, I was a student. They're just grappling with these. What, what does God want me to do? It's simple. To be holy and blameless. It's not complex. So what does being holy and blameless look like in the context of a student on campus? Does it not mean diligence in your schoolwork? Not taking credit for someone else's work? 
does not mean choosing your friends and company well. does not mean redeeming conversations with your friends and not laughing at the wrong jokes. What does being holy and blameless look like as a child at home? does not mean obeying immediately and joyfully your parents. Something that my children struggle with. Now, what does being holy and blameless look like in the context of a wife at home? Does not mean submitting to your husbands joyfully and pouring out your lives and raising your children. Does not mean dreaming up wonderful ways to exercise hospitality and disciple a younger woman in the church. What does being holy and blameless look like in the context of a husband at home? Does it not mean setting the pace of personal devotions in your home? Does not mean gathering everyone after dinner, just gathering everyone, say, okay, we're just gonna spend time in God's word together now, even if it's five minutes. Does not mean pursuing purity. Does it not mean working hard at work to provide for your families without grumbling or complaining? What does being holy and blameless look like for the single man and woman in our church? Does it not mean faithfulness in the station that God put you in? and serving him in a way that only you can do. Does not mean exercising patience if you want to get married. Does not mean exercising patience and waiting upon the Lord. As you carry on, some of you might say, oh, okay, I mean, I, I know that I've been chosen and I know to the end that I've been chosen to, but why did God choose me as a Christian in particular? Why did he choose me and not someone else? Answers in verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. Are you a Christian here today? Well, guess what? You've been chosen. But why? Well, because God loves you. Thank you. That's a great answer. But, but why does God love me? Well, because he loves you. No, no, but I want something deeper. Why? Because he loves you. To use a human example, albeit a weak example, adoptive parents simply go to the adoption agency. They say, I'd like to adopt a baby. I don't know what that baby's going to become. I don't know if he's going to be good or bad. He's going to be talented. They're simply moved by love. God predestined us before the foundation of the world, moved by love. He predestined us, the text continues, so that we could be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And this reminds me of Romans 8.29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God chose us in order that we could be like Christ and so become his children that we could bear God's seed. If you're an unbeliever or a skeptic here this morning, you might be saying, oh, well, why should I bother? And God chooses some, maybe I'm not chosen, so why, why, why should I even bother? Well, that question is irrelevant. Yours is right to read the gospel call to come and let God do the, Lord, the rest. Yours to heed the gospel call to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move now to verse 6. It says, to the praise, it starts with, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
ultimately, God chooses us to glorify himself. God is in the business of making himself look great. Now you could be standing and say, what kind of a megalomaniac is interested in making himself look great? There is one thing for us to seek our own glory. That would be sinful. Because there's so much vanity and we cannot even blink without God helping us. And this idea of God seeking glory for himself is also continued in verse 11 and 12 of the same chapter. It is in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things through the counsel of his will, so we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And again also in this, I think it's 14. God glorifying himself is good and perfect. God glorifying himself is good because he deserves it. Lydia and I enjoyed watching the, the Winter Olympics. I mean, it is amazing what those people do with their bodies. I mean, dangerous. Spinning on ice and, I mean, jumping. It's just, you just say, wow. And after that, they used to go and stand on the podium. And then the national, they would get their little, you know, and they didn't give medals in the winter, those little things. They give them the gift and they, you know, they, they listen to their national anthems being sung and they see their national flags being hoisted. What a proud moment. Those people were being glorified. Now we don't stand and say, look at these people, so arrogant, standing there and getting a gift. They deserved it. How much more should the one who wrote this, the laws of space and time, who wrote the laws of mathematics and economics and made all things not be glorified and get praise? Psalm 146 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 147 verse 1, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to the Lord, for it is pleasant. A song of praise is fitting. Psalm 148 verse 1, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. Be encouraged to live this way, to be those who would praise God. Now we move to our second last heading, the third heading. Our forgiveness and salvation is in Christ. Verse 7 to 10. Verse 7 reads, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. John Flavel, a 17th century Puritan, wrote an imaginary dialogue between Jesus and God the Father, called The Father's Bargain, which I think best unpacks verse 7 for us. It reads as follows. Here's how the dialogue goes. The Father says, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or it will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of themselves. What shall be done for these souls? The son responds, says, Oh, Father, such is my love to you and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Listen to what he says. Bring in thy bills that I may see what they owe you. 
bring them all in, that there be no after reckonings after them. After I pay, there's nothing owed. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. The father responds, he says, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay every last mite. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. The son responds, Content, father, let it be so. Charge it on me. I am able to discharge it. Though it prove a kind of an undoing to me, though it impoverishes, impoverishes all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. John Flavel and Paul in verse 7 reminds us that we need to be redeemed because we have undone ourselves because of our sins. Years ago, we used to evangelize in, in Gandhi Square and, and Campus Square. And one of the things we aimed at doing, our chief goal, at least initially in the conversation, was to show people that they're sinners. We'd say, have you ever lied? Let's say yes, but who hasn't? So you have ever stolen something? And we say, listen, by your admission, you have proved, said that you are a liar. We say, have you stolen something? He said, oh, come on. Everyone has done that. We used to look at the young man and say, have you ever looked at a woman with lust? They used to sheepishly look at the ground and say, yes, I have. And we say, when we say, the Lord Jesus Christ says, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with him in his heart. And we carry on and carry on. And if things go well, the people would desperately say, I have broken God's law. If I was to die today, I'm not going to heaven. And that was a nice segue into the gospel. And look at what Paul reminds these Christians in verse 7 of the truth that Jesus died on the cross for them, that they might be redeemed. Redeemed from none other than God himself. There seems to be, a, and we talked about this morning, a misunderstanding even among Christians that we need to be redeemed from Satan. We need to be saved from Satan because we watch too many movies. We need to be redeemed from God's wrath. Satan is one of our chief enemies, so don't get me wrong. But in the context of eternity, Satan is the least of our worries. God's wrath, eternal wrath, is our chief worry. Listen, we go to hell not because of Satan. We go to hell because of us, because of our own sin. Rather, we redeem from God's wrath. And we have redemption through his blood, Paul says. And blood there basically means resembles the death of Christ. At the cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath to his dregs. And John Flavel says, to its last might, he paid our debt. Now verse 7 to 8 continues. He says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom. Now God is rich in many ways. Romans 11.33 says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. In our postmodern world, we don't have a category for riches outside of material riches. God transcends. God's riches transcends material riches. One additional way that God is rich in, as we see in verse 7, is that he is rich in grace. 
And we see in this text that he lavishly pours out this grace on us. He's not stingy in how he dispenses his grace. We deserve immediate judgment, but God treats us better than we deserve. He's so rich that he even treats his enemies better than they deserve. God haters and those who publicly go and blaspheme the, Lord, the name of God still enjoy good fruit. The rain rains on them. They have beautiful children. I mean, they're talented. And that all comes from the depth of God's riches and grace. For Christians, though, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are experiencing something other than common grace. All of those things that I told you about, those are common grace. You enjoy special grace from God. That is the forgiveness of your sins in communion with him. And verse 9 says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in who? In him. Things in heaven and on earth. We've all had those experiences when we've wondered about something. And not have the immediate answers to that. Where we've had mysteries that need to be unraveled. Living with a 23-month-old, our days are filled with mystery. When our son Botali says things that need a bit of gray matter. Things that we don't understand. On Friday at the dinner table, he says he likes telelos. Now that was a mystery for us. <laughs> what is going on? Only God knew what that mystery was at that point in time. And then Lydia managed to unravel that mystery for us, make it revealed. He says, no, he wants tomatoes. Now our daughter Rory used to go around saying, damn. And we said, what is going Do we have a repro- reprobate here? Should we pray for her? Only to realize that she says, Graham, which is her grandmother. This gives us an idea of what Paul is referring to here in verse 9. God has made to, known to us the mystery of his will. Mystery in the New Testament has the idea of something previously hidden, but now revealed. So what is this mystery that was hidden for the ages, but now revealed? To answer this question again, we're not going far, we're staying in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. We want to understand what, what this mystery that was hidden and is now revealed. Just Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace and was, that was given to me, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but has been made but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Paul tells us quite explicitly what this mystery is. And this mystery is that in Christ, the Gentiles also have a hope of future glory. This is a mystery that even surprised Peter 
in Acts chapter 10 when he realized that Gentiles, you and me, I don't think there are any Jews here, you and me get to partake as God's people. Paul says in Acts, Peter says in Acts 10.34, he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Back to our text, still in, in verse 9, we read that in Christ God's plan is to unite all things, not just nations and tribes and tongues, but to bring everything in obedience to his dominion. What a cause to worship here this morning. There was once a time when you were not part of God's people. It was limited to the Jews. But ultimately God had a plan. Ultimately God was pointing that the true sons of Abraham were not those physically, but those who have faith in Christ. Standing here, I have a wonderful vantage point. And I get to see, you know, the people that are represented here, people from different tribes and nations and, and tongues. And all of this is because of Christ. We sing wonderful hymns. We sing a, a hymn in English and a hymn in Swana. Sometimes we sing hymn in Zulus and Kosa and Afrikaans. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. An evidence of God's plan in uniting all things in him. Saving the Gentiles. This mystery that has now been revealed. And oh, how sad it is in our day and age where we just find an excuse to racialize everything. You go buy a loaf of bread. Ah, the people who made this bread are racist. They made white bread. <laughs> everything is just an opportunity to racialize instead of looking through to the souls that God is interested in. God is interested in saving souls. God doesn't look through to race. And there's just one application. Obviously, we just said that ultimately is unite everything animate and inanimate objects under his obedience. When we be those Christians who redeem conversations, it's not always about black and white. But always say, like Peter says, God shows no partiality. And last now we move to our final point, our future hope in Christ. Let's go to verse 11. Verse 11 to 12, he says, In him you have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let's leave it there for now. Having been adopted as sons in verse 5, we have an inheritance. Children are ordinarily heirs to their fathers and have been granted an inheritance that comes through their sonship. Note that our inheritance is in Christ. Our inheritance is bound in him. If you want to claim an inheritance as God's heir, go to Christ. So what is, what is our inheritance? Is it ten cities and eternal health, living forever, it is that and more. Christ himself is our ultimate reward. He is our true inheritance. If I was to say to you, listen, in heaven we play golf eternally, but there's no Christ. And you're happy with that. 
there's something wrong there. If I was to say there's eternal lamb chops and fine wine, you can tell that I love lamb chops, sorry about that. <laughs> if there's eternal lamb chops and there's no wine, and you say, bring, and there's no, eternal lamb chops and wine and there's no Jesus, and you say, bring it, I'll take that heaven, you need to check your spiritual temperature. Or eternal PlayStation, PlayStation 8. You just play and your mom is not going to tell you to stop playing. That's what we do in heaven. But there's no Jesus. You say, when can I go? I think your soul is sick and you need to see a doctor. Someone once said that heaven without Christ is hell and hell with Christ is heaven. Christ is our exceeding reward, our true joy. Seeing him one day will bring about a transformation in our lives. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Verse 11 continues to talk about predestination, and we've spoken about that. And 12 continues, further elaborates that we will glorify God. And I talked about that in Ephesians chapter 6. So let's move to 13. Verse 13 to 14. He says, In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There was a time when Paul's readers heard the gospel for the first time and they received it as the word of truth. If you're a Christian here today, Many of you might remember the time when you first heard the gospel and the penny dropped. It is sad that even in our so-called Christian world, Christian country, there are many who still haven't heard the gospel. And you might be sitting there and wondering, saying, well, what is the gospel? Let me give you an answer to that. If you are honest in your heart of hearts, you have sinned against God. Perhaps you have lied or have stolen or have hated Perhaps you, you know that you disobey your children, your parents rather. Justice demands that you pay. Now if, if I, you know, slap someone, you know, that can be dealt quickly in this restitution. Or kill someone, you know, go spend 25 years in jail. Unfortunately in our country it's only 25 years. But if I go and kill the president, now there is massive consequences for that. That is treason. Now that is our case when we sin against God. We have committed high treason and therefore there needs to be eternal punishment for that. And that is separation with God forever, being tormented in hell. But here's the good news. Now here is the gospel. That if you confess your sins and believe in Jesus as your savior, because of what he's done on the cross, he saves everyone who would believe everyone who would repent. This means that you will no longer have to bear your own sins, but they've been borne by Christ. Look at how the Ephesians responded in verse 13. They believed. Won't you respond the same way this morning? Won't you believe the word of truth and enjoy this joy that comes with believing in Christ and spending eternity with him? They might say, oh, but I'm too young. This believing things. I don't think I can do that when I'm older. You don't know how much you have. 
And the Lord loves welcoming young children to him. And I must say, I'm too old. It's too late for me. That, that ship has sailed. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. But do you remember the thief on the cross? How he was saved at that moment? It wasn't too late for him. Now you might say, oh, if only you knew what I've done. If only you knew my sins. Jesus won't even be able to accept me. No, you are wrong. He says, the Lord says in John 3, John 6, 37, if anyone comes to me, I will in no ways cast out. Are you enjoying the garbage food of slavery in Egypt? Why would you come to Canaan, the land of milk and honey? Come to him who has broad shoulders to save. He's able to pay that debt. I plead with you. I beg with you. I beg you, come. Now you might be still in doubt and say, I still don't buy it. No, God demonstrates that he will fulfill his promise by sending his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. He will pay the the dowry price, the lobola, before the marriage happens. He gives us his Holy Spirit. If I sell my car to a friend and he says, listen, I'll pay you at the end of the month when my next salary comes. I'm not going to go and ask for a deposit. My friend, I trust you. If you say you buy the car, you will. By the way, I know where you work, so I know that you earn enough to pay me for this car. But yet, look at the grace of God. God cannot lie, and God is able to fulfill all that he's promised, but he still pays the deposit. He still puts his Holy Spirit in us, which helps us as an evidence of the things that are yet to come until we receive them. Now, if you're a Christian, take heart and be encouraged that God will complete what he has set out to do and has given you his Holy Spirit as evidence. We can only be holy and blameless, as we read in verse 4, because of God's Spirit in us. I just want to go back to my initial analogy of that central midfielder, of Christ being the centerpiece of our faith and our hope. And I think a good place to conclude in closing is I just want to read you a quote from a grace jam, the grace gem that I received. Grace gems, I mean, you just subscribe for it on just Google Grace gems, and you get emails of wonderful quotes. And there's one that just stuck with me. I just want to close in it. I'm sorry if you've heard me read it before. But I just want to go back and not lose the centrality of Christ. It's Grace Jam. I can't remember who the author is. He says, he says, Christ is most precious. He says, oh, sirs, angels are precious. Saints are precious. Friends are precious. Heaven is precious. But Christ is 10,000 times more precious than these. A believer rather have Christ without heaven than heaven without Christ. Let a, let a believer search heaven and hell, and yet he will find nothing comparable to Christ. To be like him, he continues to say, is our happiness. To draw near to him is our holiness. He says, you see, beloved, life is precious. Freedom is precious. Health is precious. Food and clothing are precious. Gold and silver are precious. Kingdoms and crowns are precious. Indeed, they are in their places, but nothing is more precious than Christ. Mark says what the apostle says, whatever was to my profit, 
and I count as loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing, of knowing Christ. The believer is the only blessed man. He's the only happy man. He's the only rich man. Oh, what a glorious inheritance are born to all who are newborn. All things are theirs, and they shall inherit all things. What can they desire? Christ is it is their true inheritance. His wisdom is theirs to teach them. His love is theirs to pity them. His spirit is there to comfort them. His righteousness is theirs to justify them. His power is theirs to protect them. And his glory is theirs to crown them. Christ is the, is, is the fairest. He's sweeter than the sweetest. Nearer than the nearest. Dearer than the dearest. Richer than the richest. And better than the best. Yes, he is precious to you who believe. Oh, sirs, to the believing soul, Christ is precious. He is very precious. He is most precious. He is always precious. He is altogether precious. Lastly, he is our faithful friend. He is a prudent friend. He is a providing friend. He is a compassionate friend, and he is a constant friend. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we just cannot believe all that Christ is for us. It is just absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for the glorious inheritance we have in him. Thank you that he is the centerpiece in our election, in our calling in our perseverance, and in our future hope. I do ask, Lord, that these words that have just come from this pulpit will not land void in the hearts of your people. Oh, but that you would save, that you would also encourage your people. In Jesus' name, amen.